Oh, finally time to sit down and play some Victoria 3. Alright, come on, come on. Don't fuck off Clippy. No. No, what the fuck? Oh, of course it's bugged to shit. I I was warned not to pre-order and play on release day. God damn it. I hope that... I hope my shitty Mac that I paid four times as much as a PC for didn't just melt down because of Clippy, uh, a piece of Windows software. Finally, time to get to some Victoria 3. Planet Earth about to be recycled. Wait, what is this? Planet Earth about to be recycled. Your only chance to evacuate is to leave with us. This isn't Vicky. Planet Earth about to be recycled. Your only chance to survive or evacuate is to leave with us. Oh shit, this isn't Vicky. This is Zencaster. <laughs> Welcome, freaks out there, to the Mechanical Freak Halloween Spooktacular. Greg, you're joining me on the boat. How are you today? Uh, I don't appreciate that you cast a spell on my computer and brought me to this recording, but um, other than that, I'm fine. Well, you should be better at IT because the spell I tried to cast on Munia's computer uh, didn't get me anything, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah he uh he had a counter spell ready i guess yeah he's he's safely in his house playing victoria 3 oh well Greg... I, yeah i wish i could be playing victoria 3 by which i mean watching youtube videos about victoria 3 even though i have it and can technically play it just to to know how to play it I like any game that requires four hours of YouTube video instruction to learn how to play. Talking about days here, man. Despite (laughs) being a a veteran uh, of Paradox Grand Strategy, um, it's almost like I know too much. I know how much I don't know. I know, (laughs) like that, I'm not really prepared to run the economy of Sweden or something. So it feels futile to start fucking around with it. Uh, maybe anyway. that's what Liz Truss was up to in England, was trying to oh learn. Oh my god, dude, uh, I could pull a Liz yeah, Truss right release, now. You know, she, before release date. Yeah. She she left right before release date, so she's good to go, you know. Shut down all the coal mines. <laughs> well, Greg, today we have a very special and very spooky Halloween episode. I prepared for you three tales of woe and weary 
And the crazy thing is the twist. Some of them are true. Some of them aren't. And I'm going to need you to suss out the difference. That's right. It's beyond belief factor fiction. Hey, man. All right. I should be good at this game. I have a legendary bullshit detector. For decades, people have been moving to the New Mexico desert for its sense of community, slower pace of life, and serene natural setting. But for the individual in our first story today, his New Mexico dream would quickly become a New Mexico nightmare. Mm. Paul Benowitz was an engineer and physicist living in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who founded the company Thunder Scientific. His company designed temperature gauges, compasses, and other equipment for the Air Force and NASA, the product of a long-time fascination with flying and space for Mr. Benowitz. In 1979, Benowitz, then in his early 50s, began filming strange lights over the Manzano Mountains just southeast of Kirtland Air Force Base. He also began recording strange radio transmissions that he felt were being created by the objects in the sky. Worried that the objects that he was observing could represent some sort of national security concern, Benowitz shared his findings with security at Kirtland Air Base, but officials did not respond to his concerns. The next year, Benowitz had a break in his research when he was introduced to a young woman who had reported a UFO sighting just north of Albuquerque. The woman met with Benowitz on the recommendation of the Aerial Research Phenomenon Organization, or ARPO, a national UFO research group that Benowitz had become an active member of. Under hypnosis, the woman revealed that she had been taken up into the craft and subjected to disturbing experiments. Benowitz's reports back to ARPO on the incident became increasingly bizarre over time. So the organization asked Bill Moore, a UFO researcher and author, as well as the head of the Arizona chapter of the Mutual UFO Network, to pay Benowitz a visit and check in on him. Unbeknownst to both Benowitz and ARPO, Moore had been in regular contact with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, an intelligence unit within the Air Force. In exchange for insider information regarding the Air Force's investigation of the UFO phenomenon for his books, Moore would give the AFOSI information regarding prominent figures within the UFO community. Moore dutifully reported on Benowitz's ongoing research and declining mental state to the Air Force. Responding to Moore's report, several AFOSI officers visited Benowitz at his house to hear him out about his UFO research. The next month, he was invited to Kirtland Air Base to present his findings to the military brass. The increased attention from the military seemed to confirm Benowitz's theories about the growing extraterrestrial danger in New Mexico. What he didn't know, however, was that his audience consisted entirely of AFOSI officials. Again, the Air Force remained silent on Benowitz's revelations. In the summer of 1981, Bill Moore again visited Benowitz, this time bringing him photos of an internal Air Force document marked Top Secret that detailed the government's continued covert investigation into the UFO phenomenon. In the document was the mention of an organization at the heart of this investigation named simply MJ-12. It was a titillating detail. 
Had Moore just handed Benowitz the key to the American government's investigation of UFOs? Was it proof that he was in fact not crazy, but hot on the trail of a threat to national security being pursued at the highest levels of the American state? Moore urged Benowitz to keep the document secret, but the revelations contained within were too explosive, and he immediately began reporting them to the UFO community. He even wrote letters to his state senator, a retired astronaut, and President Ronald Reagan regarding the document. Benowitz quickly became a celebrity within the UFO community. He was visited by Alan Hynek, a famed UFO researcher who created the categories of alien contact, such as Close Encounter of the Third Kind. Hynek had even appeared in Spielberg's film of the same name. In short, it was a visit from UFO royalty, and another confirmation for Benowitz that he was on the right track. Hynek even brought Benowitz a new computer to help him with his project of of decoding the mysterious radio signals he was intercepting. Benowitz put the new equipment to work and began decoding disturbing messages that seemed to indicate an ongoing invasion of the planet by an alien civilization. He quickly authored and began to circulate a document within the UFO community called Project Beta, where he discussed the nature of the alien threat and the impending war that he felt was increasingly inevitable. As Benowitz's activities increased, he began to notice that cars were following him when he left the house. Bill Moore even took note that when he and Benowitz met outside of a restaurant in Albuquerque, a white van pulled up slowly next to them, stopped, and took a photo of the two before driving off. Benowitz began to fear that he was under surveillance in his own home, all of which was not helping his mental state. In 1983, Moore would drop another bombshell on Benowitz. Moore had been given a document by an Air Force contact that had originally been presented to President Jimmy Carter when he took office. Unbeknownst to his contact, Moore had used his half hour to read the document to take photos of it before giving it back. The document revealed more information about MJ-12. It was a top-secret group of intelligence officials codenamed Majestic-12 focusing on the UFO question that dated back at least to the early 1950s. Even more tantalizing, it implied that they had not only made contact with UFOs, but had even made contact with their occupants. For Benowitz, it was the confirmation that he needed. The government knew that UFOs and extraterrestrials were real, and was even in contact with them. Maybe even working with them. After learning about a rash of cattle mutilations near the town of Dolce, near the New Mexico-Colorado border, Benowitz became convinced that it was the center of UFO activity in the state. An amateur pilot, he began flying reconnaissance missions focusing on the Archuleta Mesa. In a remote area of the Mesa, Benowitz found and photographed military equipment and black-clad soldiers guarding what he believed to be an underground UFO base. At one point, Benowitz went up in a news helicopter with a friend and a local reporter to show them the base. While in flight, the news chopper was forced down by a black, unmarked Black Hawk helicopter. When Benowitz's companion, a member of the New Mexico Highway Patrol, went to confront the black-clad occupants of the helicopter, he noticed that one of them had a patch indicating that they were an elite Delta Force unit stationed out of Fort Carson in Colorado. Had Benowitz witnessed one of the infamous black helicopters talked about in conspiracy circles since the 1970s? 
Were these elite soldiers part of the force Benowitz had seen guarding the UFO base? In 1985, Benowitz took a picture of a craft that had crashed near a remote part of the Mesa. Shaped like a delta wing, it was unlike anything he had ever seen before. He speculated that it was an experimental nuclear-powered aircraft that had been shot down by the aliens that occupied at the Mesa. Benowitz immediately took the photos to his contacts at Kirtland Air Base, but was again met with silence. Photos that he mailed to other UFO researchers were lost in the mail, and his original film mysteriously vanished from his house. Benowitz's activities around the Mesa had made him a celebrity in the UFO community, but it was wreaking havoc on his mental health. When Bill Moore visited him in 1987, he was barely sleeping. Increasingly paranoid, he added additional locks to all his doors and windows and stashed knives and guns around the house. He told Moore that aliens were entering his bedroom at night to inject him with drugs and that he would occasionally wake up in the desert in his car with no idea of how he got there. Moore even noted that he saw needle marks along Benowitz's right arm. Things came to a head the next year when Benowitz barricaded himself in his house with sandbags. His family finally had him admitted into a mental health facility in Albuquerque, after which Benowitz went into seclusion. In 1989, Bill Moore was the keynote speaker at the annual Mutual UFO Network conference. Addressing the condition of his friend Paul Benowitz, who had electrified the UFO community earlier, before going into seclusion the previous year, Bill gave a shocking confession. Since 1981, Bill had been passing information from the Air Force on to Benowitz at the behest of the AFOSI, information that Bill knew to be false. The revelation made Bill a pariah in the community, but it also permanently discredited Benowitz's work. Paul Benowitz would never return to his beloved UFO community before passing away sometime later. What should we make of the tale of Paul Benowitz and his white whale? Is it a true story of the fragile barrier between reality and madness? <laughs> or am I just passing you some bad information? Ooh, well, it certainly is spooky. What with, uh, you know, the government uh, uh, <laughs> reaching into people's minds and scrambling, scrambling them. Uh, that's a spooky thought. Uh, Brian, I'm gonna say that this is absolutely true. You were correct. It's fact. Greg, your bullshit detector is right on. This story <laughs> is 100% true. Not only is it true, it's way more fucked up than I even let on to you. Yeah, I mean, they, so, did, they did this with a lot of people, right? Over the course yeah. of the 70s and 80s into the 90s too i think right yeah and so basically uh the air force had been following paul benowitz since he reported the the strange you know Cause, lights because like a dumbass he he went to the he saw lights in the sky over a secluded desert air force base and was already <laughs> a little stupid and crazy and thought to himself holy fuck these must be not a aliens and aliens. The air force right there doesn't know about. So I should tell them not actually tipping them off to the real security risk to their 
top secret uh, stealth aircraft testing, which he was now presenting himself being an idiot out there photographing uh, their test flights. Uh, and uh, yeah, there, then there you go. Yeah, and so basically, once he reported that, the AFOSI decided the best course of action would be to begin anonymously mailing him tips about, you know, the fact there were definitely aliens in the desert and that he should really look into it further. A year later, they sent Bill Moore, who's an absolute fucking piece of shit, uh, to go essentially check in on Benowitz and see how the operation was going, right? Uh, when they, he reported back, they seemed to be going crazy. The Air Force, like, didn't just double down or triple down. They, like, quadrupled down the, on this operation. The guy, Alan Hynek, who's a very prominent UFO researcher and also somebody who's wor- worked for Air Force Intelligence, basically, as a you know, asset, uh, that computer that he brought Benowitz was from the air force it was given yeah. to him to give to benowitz on so, it like let me picture let me just th- this is the image i picked painted in my mind as you're telling that story this crazy person opens up a computer and it's got some uh software wherein he can play the recordings that he made and then he, he gets to hit a button that yep. like churns and shows him the little um the hourglass like uh supercomputer at work here and then spits out uh, its decoding of something horrifying, like, I'm guessing, like, not really that subtle, like, to be re- realistic enough, but, like, really just, like, uh, an English translation of, like, some aliens talking about planning an invasion or something. Yeah, so the trans, so you're exactly right. It, it yeah. contains software for uh, decoding the radio signals, which were like a little video game he, he was got getting. to play, basically. Yeah. And the thing is, is that the decoding, which is, uh, so this is all comes from a book called Mirage Men uh, by this guy, Mark Pil- Pilkington, called Mirage Men, A Journey in Disinformation, Paranoia, and UFOs. Um, but the in that book, there's he has the translations that, like, uh, Benowitz was writing down. And they're, like, super crazy. Crazy enough that if somebody showed it to you, you'd be like, dude, you're out of your fucking mind. <laughs> you know, like, uh, and that they're, like, kind of nonsensical and stuff. But they clearly are about, like, an alien invasion or whatever. You would just mm-hmm. think the person's making it up and that it sounds, like, psychotic because the person's psychotic. The thing that's nuts is this is the, the author was never able to confirm this. But basically, Benowitz was taking these radio transmissions that he was getting constantly, like, beamed into his house, putting them into the computer, and the computer was making these insane, uh, you know, translations of it. Meaning, the Air Force was probably, like, beaming those radio transmissions into his house. (laughs) Which is a, a real weird step to take, I gotta say. But, not as weird as what the Air Force wound up doing which was when they found out that he was flying his plane over Archuleta Mesa, they decided to, hey, why not? Let's let's take this a step further. Community Let me theater? Read did, they, did they do some theater out yes. there? That yes. rocks. Read... That's the best part. Wait, so the Mesa facility was for his benefit entirely, not like Only. an actual, like, some kind of, like, uh, you know, yep. something. So, but, wow. So that rocks. This is, so this is from the book here. I'll read you this excerpt. Sensing an opportunity to shift Benowitz's attention away from Kirtland, AFOSI began set-dressing the Archuleta Mesa to look more like the underground base that the physicists believed it to be. 
At night, old military equipment was hauled up the long winding tracks at the top of the mesa. Shacks, broken down vehicles, and air vents were tactically arranged to give the impression of an active location, while patches of scrub were cleared to look like landing pads for helicopters and perhaps even UFOs. Richard Doty. So Richard Doty is the agent in charge of essentially driving this man insane, right? Richard Mm -hmm. Doty claims that his team also set up a system for projecting lights onto the clouds above, generating new UFO reports to keep Benowitz, Valdez, who's Benowitz's idiot friend, and others coming back for more. An underground base also needs staff, so Kirtland's Special Forces Unit was sent out to the area to look busy. AFOSI also contracted Fort Carson Army Base on the Colorado side of the Mesa and suggested that they use it for training exercises. According to Doty, AFOSI even subsidized these army exercises, explaining that their maneuvers would be part of an anti-Soviet counterintelligence operation, which in a strange way maybe it was. On one occasion, Gabe Valdez and a TV crew were shooting a news segment about local UFO sightings with Benowitz uh, when a Black Black Hawk helicopter buzzed their own chopper. Panicked, the news crew landed, followed by the Black Hawk. Valdez angrily confronted the black-clad army men on board, pointing out that they were within his jurisdiction as a highway patrolman, (laughs) real cop hours, before being warned off. Valdez got a close look at one of the soldiers' patches and noted that they were from Fort Carson's elite Delta Force unit. Now, this sham on the Mesa, the Air Force was doing this for like four years, just regularly putting a little show on for this one man to fly around and see from his fucking plane. Now, the show for the Air Force stopped being funny in uh, 1985 when we there's no remaining photos of this. So all, all they have is Benowitz's drawings that he did later and the stories that people told. But Benowitz got a photo of what he thought was a crashed craft, Delta Wing craft, uh, in the desert. <laughs> in a remote part of the desert that was almost certainly a prototype F-117 or B-2 yeah. bomber. Um, so the Air Force, after basically uh, doing a little kabuki theater in the desert for this guy, accidentally revealed to him the thing, secret The thing of- that probably this is all supposed to be discrediting, like to cover what photos of shit in the sky does come out from... Mm-hmm. weirdos like him which i guess i mean and that's so, what it's for then i guess like you know he says he's got this thing but he says but he says it's you know has to do with aliens uh, so really the there if you buy that there's like any logic to any of this which is to say okay people weirdo you know uh desert weirdo people who've who've like been driven mad by the expanse and sun you know of the desert uh uh are out looking around at our planes flying around at night and possibly might catch them in the day but if we and it's a weird type of person who's out here doing this and if we just like go with them on this suspicion of theirs that it's aliens that then when they do like talk about it or find pieces of information that we don't want to get out because it's top secret program then no one will listen to them because they will sound crazy because about aliens. And if that's what, if he finally was snooping around and flying around enough that he got a picture of a crashed uh, stealth fighter drone or something, then 
then it worked, right? Then then it's the only person who was out there trying to say, hey, I saw this shit was this loon who's into aliens. Now, that's one explanation for it all. The other explanation is it was just fun. It was just a funny thing they were yeah. doing. You know? So, yeah, that that's a point that I want to get to. Because so Pilkington's take is that this was a, yeah, a mission at counter espionage gone horribly awry in the sense that they had to scare him away from the uh the base right but one could probably argue uh benowitz was if nothing a patriot if they just told him to fuck off he probably would have yeah so i kind of go with your second theory greg that this was just fun they they spent several million dollars now keep in mind they were keeping close tabs on his mental state they spent several million dollars essentially just driving a lone weirdo in New Mexico insane over the course of like seven years. Well, it's it's like, you know, the underlying logic makes sense, right? So like when it gets pitched, when the idea gets pitched up to the the link up the chain that it needs to, like it sounds plausible. Like, look, you know, in case anyone gets any information about stuff out here and starts talking about it it's going to blend in with all these stories we're planting in these weirdos about uh ufos in the area and no one will pay attention okay but yeah then the people who really executed are just like great this is our job now we get to have fun with these weirdos the scarier thing is just like that 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 this is this is a or the more revealing thing i think is that and the way to extrapolate this is to say this kind of thinking and these kinds of tools were probably at the fingertips of these people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, to no. be, you know, the idea of doing a, what is essentially a, a psyop on, you know, Americans like at, very elaborately is something that, you know, is in the toolkit, probably at lots of different uh, levels and venues of the security state you know yeah i mean that's the interesting thing right is that they were willing to expend this kind of time and energy on this one guy uh just imagine the other projects right uh and also it shows too that some not all projects have to make total sense right because these are just people looking for work to do everybody's bored and yeah and hey you can always call it uh experimental too right like hey Mm -hmm. we're wondering hey can we use ufo nuts as a uh, smokescreen for the inevitable leaks of uh, around uh, top secret advanced uh, aircraft projects well let's find out let's let's uh let's do an experiment here you know a test case or three or five um mm-hmm. and then you know hey if it doesn't work well we will we'll learn some things you know yeah well interestingly too uh so it's just sort of a postscript on some of our other characters here. Uh, Bill Moore is uh, famous for two things, which is he wrote this book called The Roswell Incident in 1980, which everything you know about Roswell is from this book. Oh, right? All the that details guy. that you know and love are from the book. Hilariously, uh, all that was information given to him by the Air Force. So, you know, take that what you want. Um, the other funny thing about Bill is he, as mentioned in here, was the one who introduced the world to the the concept of majestic 12 which even though bill himself knew was a lie and has been you know 
shown to be fake over and over and over again, and he's confessed it, whatever, right? Uh, and was just literally created to make people insane, uh, is an absolute fundamental core element of UFO mythology, <laughs> at least in mm-hmm. America. Like Majestic 12 is, you can't have anything about UFOs without talking about Majestic 12. And uh, just hilarious that uh, it might have been created for the sole purpose of making this guy insane. <laughs> well, now, I mean, you know, that's another interesting element is like this this little project, whether like it has some logical if sinister and like overreached like underpinnings or if it's just like some sadistic fun like it's wildly successful right like Mm -hmm. you drove drive a guy insane saying and discredit him in his reporting about real things he is seeing which are in you know whether it's lights in the sky or wrecks on the ground it's he's seeing air force aircraft uh but also it it like as a psychological operation it fucking is incredibly successful in that yeah like it propagates like a virus like to you know lots of confused weird people um and impressionable children during this period mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> so i knew every detail of the story before i read it in the sense that uh i knew all about majestic 12 and everything yeah because i was like i i read yeah. all this shit. i was well i was way yeah. into this stuff I was like in, bill, bill more happy man he i walked me. into your house the other day and in an instant in one seeing one frame of an extremely grainy video i was like oh that's bob lazar you know yeah yeah like, <laughs> all right you know like i know this yeah this I, I love this shit man you know yeah like uh the second you know in this book when they started talking about uh bill moore like doug jesse marcel and mac brazel like out of the desert and i was like i know all these characters mm-hmm. you know but uh but so another side thing. So Richard Doty, who's the agent in charge of driving this man insane, uh, he left the Air Force. The real uh, Fox Mulder. Well, Greg, funny <laughs> that you bring that up. He left the Air Force in the late 80s, uh, where he then set his sights on Hollywood, most specifically as a advising consultant for a young show on Fox called The X-Files. <laughs> Now, even more insane for our listeners, uh, apparently in like the late 90s, he got kind of bored in retirement and decided time to go back to work, you know, got to got to get back on the out on the street, talking to the people and uh, became a New Mexico highway patrolman. (laughs) So the the fuck spook to Hollywood to cop pipeline. (laughs) He did it all. That's. That's weird. True American psychopath, Richard Doty. Yeah. By the way, he freely like interviewed with Mark Pilkinson. So a lot of the details of what they were doing, which are all like not particularly um, complimentary to Richard. Like a lot of those details come from him. <laughs> and mm-hmm. according to Pilkinson, Richard apparently still is convinced that him and Paul were friends. And that it's just good that he was there for Paul because, you know, Paul was losing his mind and had he had a good friend like Richard not been there, what would have happened? And you're saying this guy's a, <laughs> became a cop later. Interesting. 
Man has been obsessed with the idea of flight since the time of the ancient Greeks when Daedalus made wings of wax to fly into the heavens. But much like when Icarus took his father's wings and flew too close to the sun before falling into the ocean below, man's reach has frequently exceeded his grasp. That is the case with our next story that details a darker side to man's ambition to fly. On October 4th, 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1 into orbit around the Earth. The Soviets then published Sputnik's path as well as the radio frequency from which the satellite was emitting a steady beep. All over the world, radio enthusiasts tuned in to hear the first man-made object to leave the Earth make its way around the world. In Turin, Italy, two brothers, Achille and Giovanni Giudica Cardelia, strung together some radio components and set up a listening station to record the signal from the satellite. They became hooked and began building an amateur radio listening post to monitor the space race. In November, they received a radio transmission from Sputnik 2. In the radio transmission, they made out what appeared to be the sound of a heartbeat. The heartbeat belonged to Laika, a dog that had become the first living thing, from the planet Earth at least, to go into space. The discovery hmm. turned Achille and Giovanni into local celebrities. When they captured audio from the first American satellite in orbit in 1958, they received the modest funding necessary to build a formal radio listening station. They took over an old Nazi bunker just outside of Turin and packed it full of listening and recording equipment. They named their lab Tora Burt, and from there, they dove into the project of monitoring space. They studied and logged the frequencies used by the Soviet space program. They learned how to use the Doppler effect, the relationship between radio waves and a moving object, to judge an object's altitude, speed, and direction. And most importantly, they kept a constant watch toward the sky. On November 28, 1960, the brothers received a strange new signal on a radio frequency known to be used by the Soviet space program. Tuning in, Giovanni and Achille heard SOS being tapped into a radio transmitter over and over again. Even more distressing, they judged that the object was moving away from them, meaning that it had broken the Earth's orbit and was now heading out into open space. Was there someone on board tapping SOS into their radio? The signal grew weaker until it eventually stopped altogether. Two months later, the brothers found a new signal they believed to be coming from a Soviet satellite. The signal contained the slow sound of a man's breath. Slow and labored, the man was dying. Later that day, they recorded another transmission, this one of a slow beating noise. They brought the recording to their father, who was a cardiologist. He confirmed the awful news. It was the slowing heartbeat of a man about to go into cardiac failure. Achille and Giovanni had inadvertently recorded the final seconds of a doomed cosmonaut's life. The story made headlines all over the world. Perhaps in response to the bad publicity, two days later the Soviet Union reported the recovery of an unmanned capsule that had failed to properly re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. One year later, Yuri Gagarin became the first man to officially enter space. But as the Italian brothers' recording showed, was he only the first to come back alive? In 1963, 
the brothers received another very distressing signal across their radio. Again, it came across on a frequency known to be used by the Soviet space program. This time, it was a woman's voice. Speaking in Russian, she spoke in a panic. Isn't this dangerous? Talk to me. Our transmission begins now. I feel hot. I can see a flame. Am I going to crash? I feel hot. I will re-enter. The transmission cut off. Had Achille and Giovanni just recorded the final seconds of another doomed cosmonaut's life? Perhaps the third in as many years? One month later, the Soviet Union announced that Valentina Tereshkova had become the first woman to enter space. But was she simply the first woman to enter orbit and come back alive? these cosmonauts lost to space and history as the Soviet Union desperately fought to win the space race? Italian brothers who study the radio instead of plumbing? Is this tale too wild to be true? Or is it too crazy to be made up? Ooh, that's a spicy meatball. <laughs> Hit it. Nailed it out of the park. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think... Brian, uh, yeah, that's fair. That's, those are some very spooky uh, cosmonaut ghost stories. Uh, they they really, you know, do have that uh, feeling of, you know, oh yeah, you know the the beating heart, the 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 fading SOS, the the last moment uh, descriptions. You know, they really have that essence of a spook story around a campfire, which is what I think these Italian losers made up or either with the help <laughs> of uh, fucking like uh, anti-Soviet, like, you know, Gladio intelligence or just for because they had a knack for storytelling and grift uh, and they thought they could suckle at the teat of like space race, like anti-communist, whatever in, in Northern Italy there. Uh, I think they did all that stuff, but I think their stories were fake and their recordings, uh, were, uh, produced by themselves, uh, on earth. You're right again. Congratulations, Greg. Your detector <laughs> is working at full force today <laughs> by believing in the criminal nature of the Italian, the Italian mind. Yeah. Anti-Italian discrimination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you instantly were able to detect the grift mm -hmm. uh yeah so quickly i mean the account i gave you is the basic account that you'll get online everywhere about these guys now these two brothers were real they were yeah, yeah. uh they actually did do a lot of important amateur uh research on using radio to like follow satellites and things like that um they like they are uh, weirdly kind of important characters and the sort of amateur uh, observation of the space race. But to throw water on a little bit of it, if you dig a little deeper, uh, one, you can find the audio of all these recordings. And that SOS recording is one of those sort of um, up for interpretation <laughs> kind of recordings. Like mm -hmm. when you watch a ghost hunting show and they play yeah. some bullshit audio and they're like, oh, it just <laughs> said something, right? <laughs> kind of uh -huh. like that. Immediately at the time, people had pointed out minor problems with the story, like the Vostok craft the Soviet Union was using, like couldn't actually Do leave it. the Earth's orbit. Yeah, it just didn't have yeah, the physically juice. impossible. Or like, I mean, 
yeah. Well, I, I'm going to, so, okay. So they, I'm going to say this. They, they made some recording that they're like, Ooh, this is spooky. Like, like ghost hunters and then made up and then did some math and made up this story about this and people liked it. And the rest of that bullshit, they just fully produced at a whole cloth because they they caught the scent. <laughs> yeah, uh, they unfortunately <laughs> released the recording of the Russian woman's uh, pleas for help, uh, which people who were familiar with the Russian language heard and were like, uh, you, this is all like grammatically. Of... Yeah, well, it's like grammatically incorrect. And I mean. It didn't follow, you, like, protocol, but beyond that was just, like, grammatically incorrect. Like, right, I mean, because you read it out of a Italian to Russian dictionary. That, and, you know, when she was like, it's getting hot, I need to get to my pizza pie. It's anti-Italian discrimination. <laughs> just <laughs> threw people off as well. Um, yeah, uh, the other thing, you know, obviously later on, uh, the, you know, people were following the soviet space program we're saying like there's no record of any of these fights ever taking place of course nor are they to this day i'm guessing which uh, yeah forever yeah. people said well that's because the Soviets are hiding it uh one of the archives is so actually when the soviet union collapsed they opened a ton of their archives like they really didn't keep yeah. anything closed uh and, and one of the and first ones the general consensus is like it was it was all there basically right like yeah if you went looking yeah. for it you could find the detailed records of everything the soviet union ever did you know yeah and so people really went and like looked into the archives around the space race and we actually have a pretty good cataloging now of every uh mission and you know incident within the soviet space program uh none of which matched up with uh the the story of our our friends Achille and uh, Giovanni. Now, Greg, uh, one interesting question would be motives, and you already hit on one important motive, which is Achille and Giovanni's operation was privately financed, hmm. and I think they learned very early on. Uh, what well, one the money came largely from like radio appearances and newspapers, and they learned early on that it helped to have a big story. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing, though, is those recordings. One theory could be that they uh, they did it themselves, right? Yeah. Another interesting theory, which you also hit on, is uh, they became really famous in Italy and even Europe itself after uh, you know uh, tracking uh, Sputnik Two. Mm -hmm. Another interesting theory is uh as you said maybe this is some nato fucking bullshit going on like you know counterintelligence like bullshit like that they were broadcasting those signals to their radio station yeah that they were uh, parked in a van outside uh or driving away from them you know uh yeah doing some like that doppler shit. effect you know yeah i think um i i would my instinct would be that you know, some of the money and encouragement was like, you know, came from, uh, at, you know, Gladio, NATO, uh, anti-communist, stay behind sort of forces. But that, you know, they did that shit themselves. That, that'd be, that's the easiest. You know, like why you've got the guys, you know, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, just let, you know, they, they, they're resourceful. I mean, you know, uh, who, who knows? Look. An, an Italian doesn't like look at another Italian and say, hmm, can we trust this guy to lie? You know, like, do we? <laughs> no, like, like, 
No, they know. Yes, we this the, these bro, these fellows can tell a fucking lie. They're Italian, okay? Anti-Italian discrimination. <laughs> yeah, uh, I had this I had this uh, instructor in college who day day one he introduces himself. He says, "My name is Fabrizio. I am a good liar." <laughs> I, my name is Fabrizio. I am a good liar because I am Italian. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> I just think I think about that every day. Uh, well, That's once a amazing. month. You know what it is? I'll tell you what it is. It's anti-Italian discrimination. I will say, uh, like a funny, I had a history teacher who was like, he did like mystery science theater commentary on like every video we watched. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did watch this. It was, you know, just one of those classic World War II newsreel kind of videos you watch in history class. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a German, like German generals and Italian generals meeting, right? You know, it's talking about the Axis powers and everything. And I just remember he's like, oh, how, he goes, how do you know which one is the Italians and which are the Germans? And everyone's like, what? And he's like, oh, look who's talking with their hands. <laughs> and the funny part was, you could totally see it in the video. Like, they're all like, ah! You know? and, then, and of course, the Germans look like they're like statues, you know, on the tarmac yeah, or the, whatever. the Prussian military seriousness. And then yeah. the hot-blooded Italians losing their minds. <laughs> in their too tight uniforms, choking off the blood to their heads. Yeah. Yeah, just amazing stuff. Now... This story has lived in internet and just the world lore uh, since the 60s, basically. Uh, part of the reason is there is this belief that the Soviet space program was like especially callous when it came to human life. And uh, I'm just going to read you something that I, I remember I, I found this out years ago. And the, the, I, there it, was this belief. There was this imp- implanted idea. Yeah. <laughs> There's this propaganda notion. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, I kind of knew that probably wasn't true, but I, I found this out like years ago and it surprised even me, which is uh, over the course of all space programs, right, around the world, uh, there have been 31 astronaut deaths and either training accidents or missions. All right. Mm-hmm. 23 of those deaths are Americans. And one is an Israeli flying on an American spacecraft as a passenger. Mm hmm. Five of those deaths are cosmonauts. So, does that include the canines? Uh, well, you know, the Americans shot animals into space. I people no, who I freak know. out about the dog thing are always no, so no, funny. No, it's I, like, what? I, how do you, you're not going to shoot a person. Like, you don't know. Nobody knows yeah. what's up there. Like, you can't just shoot a person <laughs> in the fucking space. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that's uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, they now, were now, heroes because, of the Soviet Union. Because the Soviets shot people to space first or whatever, there are funny incidents in space that are uh, fucking terrifying uh, that they got to experience firsthand. Like, they made their suits out of some weird material, not realizing that space, you know, space is a vacuum, which they, of course, understood, but they couldn't, like, test these things really well. And so the so first it blew astro- up like a balloon, right? Yeah, yeah the first astronaut yeah. did a space walk. It blew up like a balloon. He couldn't get back in the capsule. <laughs> It's, Didn't he have to puncture it and like get yeah. in quickly? Yeah, that's so fucking great. In space, yeah, in <laughs> space, just tethered to a fucking capsule. When you realize the Earth, when you realize when you're like, oh shit, I'm the I'm the fucking uh, Michelin Man here, and the only way to 
get to safety is to cause a flat tire you know <laughs> uh, like imagine like you, you could if you sl- you let go you slip or something you'd be spinning around like a cartoon you know yeah yeah, yeah no it's like uh you know that's some terrifying shit <laughs> to participate in um you know and they had th- their biggest accident i think is they killed two people on a Soyuz rendezvous where two crafters is a rendezvous and they missed and in the collision essentially killed the people on the craft. Um, I, I'm going to guess though, that the guy who the cosmonaut who had to like puncture his suit in space mm-hmm. and climb back in, I think, you know, just as he was small enough, like did it with like uh, a, you know, a, a the bravery of someone uh you know struggling for a, a greater cause and a certain kind of like uh uh slavic stoicism whereas i'm picturing like you know there is like there some of the uh american some early american astronauts did like shit their pants when shit like like gus grissom like almost fucking <laughs> causing himself to drown because he had a panic attack when he hit the water um and like blew the door off his capsule before they had got the hook on it so he just started fucking sinking um well and was never allowed to fly again you know well the uh that cosmonite which you can find like interviews with him and stuff you know he lived to whatever ripe old age so you can find interviews with him where he talks about this in his telling of it, it's just the it's most funny. casual thing in the world. Yeah, <laughs> oh, okay. where it's supposed to be, I would be like trembling and like retroactively shitting my pants telling the story. To him, it's just like very matter of fact of like, well, I had to get back in the capsule. Can't just stay outside in space. You know? <laughs> like, now, the funny thing is, this, the guy was early probably sp- at Stalingrad, man. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I know. That's the thing, right? And like... <laughs> Not even the scariest things happened to him in his life, right? Like in the last ten years or he's whatever. Like, right? Cool. He's like, man, if I die up here, that's fuck, man. What a story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, the early space program, it's all test pilots because going into space is both incredibly dangerous and fucking stupid. Stupid. So yeah, it really yeah. takes a, sp- a certain type of person uh, to get to volunteer for this shit. Um, yeah, I mean. The callousness you see in, you know, like the Challenger explosion, where there's a faulty O-ring that all the engineers at NASA know about. They know that under certain conditions, it's going to cause an, you know, could potentially cause a catastrophic disaster. That day when they fired the shuttle off were exactly those conditions. People told them at the time not to fucking fire that shuttle off. And they did it anyways because they were worried about budget cuts and fucking blew up i think there was seven or eight astronauts on board the Mm -hmm. challenger when they blew it up uh that o-ring by the way was made by a mormon cult uh that for whatever reason nasa just contracted with to make parts for them it's called pork Uh, brian (laughs) yeah exactly Uh, everyone's gotta get a taste including utah okay uh So yeah, the weird polygamous cult that Warren Jeffs was the head of, they're the ones who are making those O-rings for NASA. Um, Yeah, I mean, just one of the many weird connections between America and cults. But, uh, you know, I mean, that that stuff is pretty callous. Um, Even the uh, Columbia explosion, 
uh, they basically weren't inspecting the ceramic tiles on the bottom of the shuttle. So what happened was on re-entry, some of the tiles were cracked. And so upon yeah. re-entry, it essentially just tore the shuttle apart, scattered everybody across West. I was in college when that happened, and people were talking about driving out the desert to look for pieces. But um, but yeah, uh, even that was like a, a budgetary issue of like, well, you know, we can't waste time on safety precautions because there's, uh, you know, budgets are being discussed and we can't get cut, <laughs> <laughs> like the war on terror is taking up too much, you know, attention. We can't get our, our budget cut. Uh, just send them into space. I mean, that's, you know, it's funny. Cause like, that's the, um, those stories of like, Oh, that was the pressure here was budget cuts is like the, the top layer analysis that like the news media that does talk about it, like gets from the, the people immediately below the people who made the decision and are criticizing, you know, from the inside, but like, you know, for that to really, for that to be the reason like indicates actually like a much like larger sort of, uh, rot at the heart of like American bureaucracy, you know, that goes beyond just like some, uh, immediate, uh, even if, you know, the criticism is that it's it's callous and, and short-sighted, like, there's some, you know, there, it's, uh, it, it, it points to something larger, you know? Now, uh, to get back to the sort of legend of lost cosmonauts, right, and, you know, was this an op, right? The, it's the eternal question, was this an op? Uh, around the same time, there was a guy named Julius Epstein, not related, uh, who was a research associate at the Hoover Institute at Stanford, right? So already, you know, yeah. eyebrow raised. He had been a intelligence officer for the OSS during the war and now was a vociferous uh, cold warrior. And one of his particular picadillos was raising attention to the horrors of the Soviet space program and throughout the 60s, he wrote multiple papers about the dozens of lost Soviet cosmonauts killed in space. Uh, he would deliver these to the press, which, of course, would dutifully report on them, uh, as well as he made uh, he made the uh, I think the senator from California read his reports into the congressional record <laughs> so that it would be recorded for all time. He is the source of a the 1964 Guinness Book of World Records, which gives a list of nine cosmonauts lost in space. Um, you awesome. know, so there was obviously some sort of weird operation in the 60s around this. Uh, and it's created like a whole cultural byproduct of it. I found this crazy story about how in the 90s, there was a, a journalist who started, you know, wrote this crazy story, this uh, Mexican journalist who wrote this crazy story about uh, this particular uh, Soviet cosmonaut who had died in space with his dog and uh, how the Soviet Union covered it up. And it came out that the journalist was actually misinterpreting a Spanish uh, modern art exhibit put on by, and I apologize for this, Joan Fontcuberta, whatever, an artist who was obsessed with the idea of conspiracy and misinformation and had been feeding, sending out to journalists and stuff stories about this lost Soviet cosmonaut uh, in preparation for a giant art exhibit they did in Madrid where they featured, uh, you know, like 
relics and stuff from this lost astronaut and like full biographies and stuff of the astronaut and their dog and like what Hmm. happened and all this stuff. Uh, They even made a big website for it. And on the website, apparently in red on red background, it says pure fiction all over the website, Hmm. but it's presented as real. And this story has now become just part of internet lore. So you can find people, the astronaut is listed Ivan Ishtashnikov, uh, which apparently is just a russification of the artist's name and their dog. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds like a made up Russian name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Apparently it's the artist's interpretation of what would be the Russian version of their name. But again, I mean, this is just a weird artist being a weird artist, but it shows to which this sort of op in the 60s had really like infected the cultural brain that people are like willing on so little information just go yeah totally that's probably true (laughs) mark twain once said that the only difference between reality and fiction is that fiction needs to be credible okay i'm gonna say that he didn't say that this and is that's a classic. False. <laughs> <laughs> this is a classic Jonathan Frakes opener, though. <laughs> but what happens when fiction creates reality? That's the case with our final story about a seeming small town news story that became something much bigger. On October 31st, 1938, Americans settled next to their radio for their nightly entertainment. What they heard was a reporter breaking into their broadcast to report that a flying saucer had landed at Grover's Mill. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. As the story unfolded, more and more radio stations picked it up, interrupting their own nightly programming. Reports quickly came in that the pods had opened up, revealing their Martian inhabitants and their weapons of war. Many were not aware that the broadcast that they were listening to was in fact an adaptation of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, being put on by the Orson, by Orson Welles' Mercury Theater Company. Millions of Americans panicked and took to the streets. Hospitals reported a record number of admissions from panic-related injuries. The next day, the New York Times detailed the panic on its front page. Papers around the country were sharing their own local accounts. The idea of a Martian invasion had entered into the American consciousness. Fast forward to July of 1947. Two unknown aircraft entered American airspace over the state of Alaska. U.S. military radar stations tracked the craft as they moved down the West Coast and then into the American Southwest. Most disturbing, though, was that the craft exhibited extreme maneuvering capabilities, including the ability to stop and hover over a location that were far in advance of any technology the U.S. military currently had. Kirtland Air Base in New Mexico mobilized an ace World War II vet to try and track down the craft in order to get a visual. He came back with nothing. A break came when a local rancher outside of Roswell, New Mexico, reported that a military aircraft had crashed on his ranch. 
a local U.S. Army Air Force officer named Jesse Marcel went out to the ranch to investigate the crash. He stated to local reporters that he had found a flying disc from outer space. Had Jesse Marcel found proof of life beyond our planet? Or had he walked into a story that was even more strange? Immediately upon hearing about the crash, the Joint Chiefs of Staff took over the investigation, sending their own selected officers to investigate the crash in Roswell. They immediately withdrew Marcel's statement about the flying disc and reported that it had in fact been a simple weather balloon. Documents declassified in 1994 would reveal that, quote, flying disc is exactly how military investigators at the time would describe the wreckage. The remains of the craft were removed from the ranch and sent to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, before finding their way to a new research facility in Nevada that went by the name of Area 51. A team of five engineers that worked with EG&G, a favorite private contractor of the Atomic Energy Commission, were assembled to study the remains of the craft. They were told that this was a project on par with the Manhattan Project in both secrecy and potential ramifications. It was out there by Groom Lake that some startling discoveries were made. Engineers found writing inside the craft, but it was not some mysterious alien hieroglyphics, but Cyrillic, Russian to be specific. Former Nazi scientists that had been brought to the U.S. with Operation Paperclip to work on secret projects at White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico were brought in to advise on the project. They instantly recognized the craft, stating that, quote, it is one of ours. This mysterious flying saucer was not from Mars, but from a more earthly source. The next revelation was the most disturbing of all. There had been a second crash site in New Mexico, and recovered at this crash site were the bodies of four pilots, two of which were still alive, though in a comatose state. An EG&G engineer recalls seeing these two survivors being kept on life support in vertical tanks filled with a jello-like substance. They would occasionally open their mouths as if trying to speak, but the engineer was assured they were in a fully comatose state and unresponsive to any stimuli. What was most disturbing, however, was their appearance. They were short in stature with large round heads. Their eyes were large, black, and almond-shaped. Doctors found that the pilots were in fact human and were likely around 13 years old. Their appearance was the byproduct of extreme surgery. During their research at Area 51, the engineers uncovered a horrifying conspiracy. It turns out that the Orson Welles broadcast in 1938 had an international audience. Joseph Stalin had heard about the panic that the broadcast had caused and began hatching a plan. Hmm. As the war in Europe came to a close and the Red Army drove toward Berlin, the Soviet Union began its own recruiting of Nazi scientists. The Horton brothers, Walter and Reimar, had been top aviation designers in the Third Reich, famous for their single-wing plane designs. The Soviet Union recruited them to finish their final project for the Nazi regime, a single-wing craft that was round in shape with a bubble protruding from the middle, capable of quickly changing direction and hovering in place. Walter and Reimar would build Stalin his flying saucer. Joseph Mengele, Auschwitz's angel of death, infamous for his surgical experiments on camp prisoners, 
was recruited to make Stalin his aliens. Mangala surgically grafted larger adult skulls onto the skulls of living children and manipulated their eyes to give them their otherworldly appearance. In exchange, Megala was promised his own lab in the Soviet Union to con- continue his eugenics research, a deal Stalin rescinded. The plan was to use radio controls to fly the Horton Brothers' flying saucer into American airspace, stuffed with Mangala's alien pilots. Upon reaching their destination in New Mexico, they were to land and reveal themselves to the American public, setting off a panic across the country. The panic would be a prelude to a potential Soviet invasion, an act of black propaganda that would offset America's nuclear advantage. Could it be that the crash at Roswell was a flying saucer, but one of an earthly origin? Is this tale of little red men from beyond the Iron Curtain true? Or like H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds itself, is it the product of an overactive imagination? Uh, I know this is a tough one, Greg. I, I think you should publish this uh, on its own website and start a new sort of uh, legend of Roswell. It's time some some new uh, imagination was injected into that bullshit. I'm going to take it you uh, are not buying into this story. Mm, I think it's... I I would sooner believe it was aliens. It's totally made up. Pure fiction. It's fiction. It's fiction. We made it up. We made this one up. It's a made-up tale. It's a total fabrication. It never happened. Well, Greg... You are three for three, sir. <laughs> you can't but I do me, want man. to say, I do want to say, it's interesting that you mentioned that I should create a website and publish this, because if I did, it would be plagiarism. <laughs> oh, this As wasn't your handiwork? This story comes from Annie Jacobson's 2011 book, Area 51, An Uncensored History of America's Top Secret Military Base. And I know you're thinking... Who is this kook Annie Jacobson? Another Benowitz-like character driven insane by the Air Force. Um, okay, hang on. Is she actually someone from the National Security State? Uh, well, you know what? <laughs> Open for debate. Uh, <laughs> she is, though, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, a respected journalist, I'm told. Okay. She was the editor of the Los Angeles Times magazine at the okay. time that she wrote this book. This is you just this is someone with less credentials than Eli Sanders. <laughs> OK, so, think about it. when this book came out, though, uh, it spent 13 weeks on top of the New York Times bestseller list. It was translated into six languages. It had favorable reviews and interviews with the author on NPR. Uh, the New York Times gave it a favorable review calling the book cauldron stirring the LA times, of course, you know, I mean, shit, she's the editor of their magazine had to give it a good review, but most funny to me uh, and how I found about it was she actually got pretty favorable interviews on uh, democracy. Now, <laughs> boo, <laughs> good job, Amy. Ugh. And uh, probably most hilariously. And I did see, you can still find this online and watch it. Uh, the daily show with John Stewart. So, Mr. Asking the Tough Questions was like, 
damn, Stalin did what? <laughs> I mean, could, could, is it, I mean, I think, I mean, we know the answer. Like, how does, it's just like, you can say anything that's in service of like, anti-communist, anti-Soviet, or now anti-Russian, you know, efforts. Like, is whatever, just throw it up there and it's you can print whatever you want but i mean like yeah like people debasing themselves like i mean you know some of these people probably didn't read the book you know but like was it was that the last or was that the last chapter because that's pretty fucking stupid uh it's uh yeah it's insanely stupid uh it is spread over two chapters in the book it's by far the only interesting part of the book uh, unfortunately for John, uh, he did specifically mention that's the only part of the book he read. <laughs> so bad news for John. Well, um, I mean, was it couched in like, this is like, was this reported as like, oh no, this I'm finally telling you the the real, like really what the Roswell was about. Like, this is it. Like, or was it like couched in some kind of veil? Like speculative veil? Uh, no, it was reported as absolute facts. Now, she mentions over and over again, this is information she's gotten from a secret source within that EG&G team who went unnamed. Now, hilariously, eventually some media outlets started to ask questions. Uh, interestingly, Popular Mechanics uh, gave it a just uh, scathing review. Oh, because some, some regular, like, thinking human Reddit who wasn't, yeah. like, in <laughs> on the, like, didn't have the training to go, like, to sniff the sort of uh official um uh narrative like uh being put like oh i'm supposed to do this this is my job right now is to like push this over the transom you know like uh well, like npr did yeah i yeah. guess and i mean, what do you expect from I guess NPR, amy right? goodman yeah, the democracy now. I mean, the democracy now. What is the most disappointing? The John Stewart one is embarrassing. It's and just... I mean, what what do you expect from the New York Times and NPR though? Um, yeah, that's interesting... just their job. But even when it is that stupid, you know. But I mean, Jesus. Yeah, interestingly, I mean, anybody listening to this who's who uh, is interested, you know, hit me up on Twitter or whatever, and I'll send you the link. The Popular Mechanics review is funny to read. It's definitely worth reading. Um, but. They actually called all her sources and her editor and asked their editor why they would print this, which is pretty funny. They asked that her first if they believed it, <laughs> which is a real, a real gotcha question. On yeah, that yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, they called her sources, so she has named sources that were in these sort of like skunks work, skunk works projects, uh -huh. you know, uh, building because it also talks about the creation of like the uh, the A twelve ox car and the uh, SR the uh, SR-71, whatever the fuck it's called. Anyways, yeah. the, the various Blackbird. spy planes being built yeah. in a room like the Blackbird, right? Uh, yeah. She does interview some of these engineers who are there on there, the record. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're there on the record, and so hilariously, Popular Cats called some of them and talked to them, and a lot of them are like, wait, the book says what? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she didn't get that from me. That's fucking bullshit and stupid. Um... They tried to get a hold of the secret source and hunted down somebody who they that they pretty much are pretty sure is the is the quote unquote source. And they only talked to his elderly wife on the phone and he appeared to be very infirm, <laughs> maybe uh, a little crazy. Um, well, that's who you, you if you want to, like, pass some bullshit on 
you use someone uh burnable like that you know yeah. at the end of their the end of their career in life you know yeah now the interesting thing is again we come to the eternal question is it an op right and i think there's a lot of ways you could think about this uh I gotta say, I, uh, I have my my instinct is casual op. Yeah. So, on the one hand, I have watched a lot of interviews with Annie Jacobson. I have read a lot of her. I've read her stupid book, and I've read a lot of uh, stuff that she's written. I am one hundred percent convinced she's just a fucking moron, like just a, a fucking idiot, like literally, uh, you know. Uh, sub room temperature iq more again we're talking about um, a quote-unquote journalist with yeah uh less impressive credentials than eli sanders so uh, yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah still somehow reached further interesting um mm. the interesting question I, I i don't think this is true so i'm not gonna put this out there it's like i think this is what happened but i think an interesting idea is people like popular kids who did look at the other stuff in the book said there's a lot of interesting things in the rest of the book about the creation of these aircraft and the engineering of them and things like that and could it be that this is some sort of reflex from the air force yeah to just throw she's, smoke and bullshit she was right she was writing about area 50 it's a book about groom lake okay like all this old secret shit and so it's going to tip off the it's going to when she goes asking around these engineers who are now, yeah, a lot of that stuff declassified, but it's going to get around. It's going to get around mm. to the people, the old, retired, infirmed people who were on these projects who, you know, decades ago, whose job they made it to to spread bullshit and misinformation and invent the roswell story in the first place and they got excited and and uh put put just just cranked up the old machine ca casual yeah. op and thought like hey let's try we they never they never let us use this one back in the day let's get pull out one of those other drafts for Ro the roswell thing the one mm -hmm. we really liked but that the yeah. the higher ups never let us publish. Well, well we're all oh, this, we're, this is the all, Plan B draft. You're totally right. Yeah. All we're collecting now is a pension. Okay, we can we can give this this fucking journalist whatever we want. This is the one we liked. Okay, yeah, yeah. The 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 one where Stalin's involved, you know, and a Nazi yeah. flying saucer and and mutilated children sent by Uncle Joe. And they're like, yeah, this is perfect. Just because they can. Again, the reflex to just like do it because you can. And yeah, embarrass this woman, this idiot woman <laughs> who like <laughs> just I, I mean, how do you even think if you're these guys, how do you even think this is actually going to get published? Like this is a real journalist, the editor of a magazine. Yeah. You're going to give them this. You're fucking around. You're fucking with this woman. And this dumbass yeah. brings it to her editor and then in the journalist world the again casual part of the op the way you know psychological operations work is like there's a whole media class trained to kind of like pick up on certain frequencies that you just like you let 
you retransmit, you know, and it's like that one was like, oh, we're talking about all this goofy. This is a book about like, oh, you know, Area 51. So there's going to be some goofy shit. And wow, the goofiest shit is like about Stalin mutilating children. I mean, that's just you just send that right on. You just yeah, that just goes. That's the instinct, you know? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I get picture. I just love picturing like the Air Force intelligence guy sitting around and being like, Oh, well, that fucking wet blanket Richard Doty is gone. He's, he's yeah. pulling people over New Mexico for speeding. Uh-huh. Um, let's let's do the fun story. Like, yeah, like let's let's do let's do our B story that he shot down. Uh, let's get funky with it. now. The thing is, people might be saying like, but this seems like such a waste of time. Why would these guys? Be, it's so ridiculous. Why would these guys be doing it? But think of the high they must have had. Oh, my God. Coming up with such an insane story. And then watching it go through all the gears, right? And like slowly make its way to public. Like every step of the way being like, there's no way it's going to make it. There's just no <laughs> way it can make it, right? And, they were know, Kramer in the car yeah. that's on E on the highway, right? Like- right. And that, the, the, the thrill of going like, holy shit, I still got it. I still got it. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest who ever played the fucking game. Like, how did we like, oh, my God. It's like, uh, you know, they're fucking uh, uh, Mr. X in JFK. Yeah, we were we were good. We were very good. You know, (laughs) right? Like Black Ops, Mr. Garrison. (laughs) Stalin mutilating children. Nazi flying saucers like yeah and i mean um you know uh before i tell you the shocking uh conclusion to annie jacobson's story which is going to reintroduce the question uh is she an op um we'll just do a little catching up with the story itself for those who just all these journalists who are the sources for the the ops they're all the ones who like any italian can look at any Italian and say, can we trust him to lie well? And for us, the answer is yes. In America, a country of guileless fucking rubes, you know, you can't make that assumption. You need to have brought someone into the fold and tested them a little and know mm-hmm. that they are on the right wavelength, know that they can pick up the signals and transmit them. And they all come from some they all come from intelligence bob fucking woodward okay mm-hmm. oni all right that it's yeah. it's it's woodward's all the way down with this shit okay so yep. lay it on me what's her connection to the intelligence well, state we'll get to that that's our closer let's just go <laughs> for the people unfamiliar with maybe some of the details of the story we'll give a quick roundup of uh what what's going on here but uh in the mid-90s, uh, it turned out that Roswell was neither an alien spacecraft nor a weather balloon. In the mid-90s, it was revealed that it was part of a a crash of a balloon surveillance system known as Operation Mogul that was a high-altitude surveillance system. Making the weather balloon claim make a little fucking sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little, I, I'm just going to say that old Jesse probably didn't get a promotion after his original handling of the situation. Uh, again, 
Proving also an eternal point here. Now, he was in the U.S. Army Air Force. The Air Force hadn't broken away at the time. It took another month for the Air Force to become a real thing. Uh, never trust anybody in the Air Force. They're all morons. Like, well, they're all the either lying to you or stupid. But like, he's so the genius. He's the genius who came up with the idea to say, oh, wait, when civilians see our top secret aircraft projects. Oh, sh- I had not considered tell this. Tell them it's aliens. And now he got shot down, right? Because then the higher ups were like, you fucking idiot. Make it a simpler story. Why are you attracting attention to this? Just say it's a balloon because it is. That's what the man saw. Don't tell him it's a tell him it's a mundane balloon. And but that little story was stuck in the minds of the weirdos, the kind of weirdos who get into counterintelligence and and uh, mm-hmm. black ops and uh, psyops. And they loved that. They loved the whole Roswell story. It's why they got into the business. And when they found out that it was just an idiot who came up with, "Ooh, tell him it's a crashed alien spacecraft. They're like, fuck that. That's it. That's the fucking ticket. We're doing this. We're doing this, but we're pursuing, we're going all the way with it, but not issuing it to the press from the Air Force, issuing it to loons to, to give out to the world. That's the provenance. That is a fascinating take, because the thing is, all truly groundbreaking geniuses are not appreciated in their own time. <laughs> like, like, nobody can respect, like, their genius at the time. And uh, Jesse, I always thought he was just an idiot, but now I'm starting to think Jesse was ahead of his time. He was a genius. He was, well, he was a, he was uh, a trendsetter, you know. Yeah, yeah. Damn, that, that really blew that wide open. Now, is uh, <laughs> now just because these are like funny uh, stories. So Annie in her interviews likes to, you know, hang her hat on, you know, with these Nazi scientists and whatnot. Oh, who knows what they were up to after the war? And just because these are kind of funny stories, uh, it's actually extremely well known what like all these guys were up to after the war. Uh, The Horton brothers, one uh, immediately went to Argentina on like a CIA rat line, (laughs) essentially our Vatican rat line, actually. Um where he tried to get a job in like Argentinian aviation, yeah, but they tried couldn't to cut it. They tried to uh, sell them on some of their weird. Didn't they get like one start building one like model well, plane, and they never real they they never bought <laughs> the line or something. The closest he got to selling something was he built a single wing plane, a small single passenger single wing plane that was for carrying potatoes from the Argentinian countryside into the city uh, that he was never quite able to sell. His brother, uh, who was smarter and realized nobody's coming for us. Uh, continued his life in West Germany where he just joined the West German Air Force and became, you know, an officer in the West German Air Force with all of his Nazi friends when they all just had a big reunion (laughs) and hung out. Joseph Mengele is the more interesting one. I mean, you're obviously not just going to give him a job at Cedar sinai or something, Uh, but he did, and he was a little concerned that he might... uh, see some sort of consequence uh, for his actions. He made sure to keep all of his work files with him and tried to destroy as many as he could to hide what he'd done. Of course, there were survivors at the camp who the camps who testified as to his activities and goings on. 
by the time that their testimony became public in any way, the U.S., of course, had given up on actually doing the Nuremberg trials. Mengele spent about four or five years in Germany itself working as a farmhand uh, where he worked under an assumed name, but everybody knew who he was and uh, all his friends from the war continued to visit him regularly. He eventually moved to Latin America or to South America uh, where he lived in, I believe, Argentinian Argentinian Paraguay. Uh, The interesting thing being he initially lived there under his real name. And at one point in the late forties, he actually applied for his German visa and birth certificate, uh, his German passport and birth certificate under his real name. He was like me, Joseph Mangla living at this address need all the like birth certificate information stuff. So I can get, you know, citizenship in this country here. Uh, so send that to me, which the West German government then sent to him. So to give you an idea of how hard the West was looking for this man, mm-hmm. the man known as, uh, you know, the angel of death, right? Uh, not not a lot looking for him. Uh, uh, he eventually just died of old age in Paraguay. Um, his son, uh, who was estranged at that point, had visited him at one point in Paraguay. And apparently his son's comment on him was that my father is an old man, an unrepentant Nazi. So, you know, to give you an idea of uh, what old Mangalo was up to, um, yeah. So, this story, even at the time, not a single stitch of which uh, could have been true. It was all like obviously false, uh, as people pointed out. Like this literally could not have happened. Um, if the Soviets had built an aircraft with these kind of capabilities, why did they choose to stop building it? <laughs> Uh, like oh well, well, I mean that's just the start know, like, of how stupid it is. Like uh, stupid that is. Yeah. Forget the. I'm Soviets. gonna land in New Mexico if, to create a panic. There's nobody forget, in New Mexico. Forget, <laughs> Who's gonna panic? Forget the Soviets. <laughs> like, what about just like, like physics? Like, yeah. I oh, know, this like, is po- I mean, was on. possible to do in 1947, but not now. Now I will say the funny part is Annie anticipating some of the criticism. In the book, she asks her source about this. Well, why, when you guys found this out, why didn't the U.S. just publicize it? Like, this seems like a pretty big uh, coup. And uh, the... the the guys feeding the information are like, we wanted to. We loved this story. But (laughs) but that was the point. That's why I wrote it. I wrote it to publish it, you know? (laughs) We've been trying to get it published for years. Don't ask me, lady. Um, So... You know, she asked that and the person just responded, oh, we couldn't publish it. And then I presume a shadow came over them and he was like, because we were doing the same thing. And he doesn't elaborate. So I I don't know if we're supposed to interpret that we were also going to launch a flying saucer full of mutilated children into the Soviet Union or what. But uh, it was just a funny thing to like end on. It's like maybe ask some follow-up questions or, uh, you know, like, oh, hey, this story sounds very stupid. (laughs) <laughs> yeah um okay so let's get to the million dollar question what is annie up to today uh any any guess what business she got into greg she's not doing journalism anymore uh want to guess where she's at these days wait when was this book published 2011 so uh at some point discredited uh so but you know, obviously uh, laughed at, laughed out of public he, society. First laughed, off, first off, the laughed fact that you out of jur- discredited is hilarious. She was laughed, never discredited. Laughed out of journalism and public society because of the stupidity of this book. Obviously, um, 
And now she is in uh, crypto PR. I don't know. State Department. You're wrong. Greg, I really thought you would go four for four on this one. I thought oh, you were unstoppable. Damn it. You uh, have. I've connected so many dots have, tonight. Uh, I know. Well, let's let's all give I give it to you. You've missed the most obvious place for her. That is as writer and producer for Amazon's Jack Ryan series. Whoa. Okay. That's right. If you okay. want to see Jim from The Office take on the government of Venezuela, that's brought to you partially by the brain genius that is Annie Jacobson. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All, it's also a that is an op. That show is yep. a CIA op. <laughs> I told okay. you it was going to come back. So, <laughs> yeah, you don't just get both of those jobs. You don't just publish that book and get that job without being connected to intelligence. I'm sorry. Like, in some way, <laughs> being an asset on some level. Now, I if you go back, if someone looks, someone's got to find out, like, sometime in college, there's something, there's some breadcrumb that mm-hmm. you can be like, oh, oh, she did a, she did an internship with fucking uh, AID or something, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, whatever. It's there. Um, I have a secret source. They're going to, they're going to reveal all to me. Uh, she was actually uh, created by Joseph Mangala in a lab. Now, um. I want to read the final paragraphs of the Popular Mechanics review to you just because they're so funny. Um, Quote, we ran across something that made pieces of the saucer teen yarn seem not so groundbreaking. The July 1956 edition of the magazine Astounding Science Fiction contains a short story by James Blish, a fairly popular writer in his day. Tomb Tapper is about a strange craft that crashes in a small town in upstate New York, and that might be extraterrestrial. The people who find it can't tell whether it's Soviet or from outer space. They break into the hull to find the pilot dying in the cockpit. The pilot's helmet falls off. Lying before them is a blonde-haired girl, perhaps eight years old. To be sure, any similarity to the account of Jacobson's unnamed source is coincidental because Blish's story is fiction. It's fantasy. And as Jacobson states on Area 51's cover, quote, this book is a work of nonfiction. The stories I tell in this narrative are real. (laughs) (laughs) It says that on the cover? (laughs) Yep. Incredible. Like I said, this review is so fucking funny. So people, if you're interested, let me know. I'll send it to you. Um, All right, Greg. Well... Shall we uh, call a close to our midnight society that we've created here? All right. I'll, I'm taking the push pins off the cork board. I'm putting them away <laughs> in their little case. Pulling all your yarn down. Yeah. <laughs> winding rolling it back it up. up. We're winding it up for next time we play. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for joining us, everybody. And we'll see you all next time. Ooh. Happy Halloween. In your mind you have capacities, you know To telepath messages through the vast unknown Please close your eyes and concentrate With every thought you think Upon the recitation we're about to say
Most extraordinary crap. 